Ladies and gentlemen, an honor as always to have you back on this illustrious program, which we call the Podject because it doesn't have a direction. We don't know where it's going, but it's going somewhere. And that's New Heights. After easily getting the biggest guest in the pod's history, we have Nick Kiprios coming on for a slam dunk interview today. I was a kid in a candy store, folks. It was really fun talking to <clears throat> Kipper about his own playing career, his transition into broadcasting, and tried to get everything else in between there. It was I was uh, I had a really good time, and he's such a beauty. I, just for him to even come on and, and do that with me is is really unreal. So we just hopped off the call a couple minutes ago, and um, I'm finishing the rest of this episode. It should be out out soon. I'm recording this. It's a Friday. It's just about 4 p.m. The weekend is here. I'm not sure if I'm going to just get this episode out as soon as possible or I might wait until Sunday to release it. So if you hear me yammering and I don't get it out till Sunday and me talking about it's Friday, Friday is when I recorded this. But I had a lot of fun. I'm not going to touch on the interview too much because I'm going to throw it over there quite quickly. But it was awesome. It was unreal. Um, Shout out to my former coach, Kevin Vesio, for getting me in touch with him. Um, but it was it was really fun, and he's such a great guy. We were on Zoom, that's how we recorded it, and he was right in his studio where he records that new podcast that he does with Doug McLean, uh, Real Kipper at Noon, and it was sweet. Felt like I was looking at the TV, and I'm looking at Nick Kipper, I was talking back to me. Pretty sweet, seeing as he's a guy that grew up on my TV, watching a lot of my favorite sports programs growing up. Uh, he's an absolute fixture in hockey media, and uh, he's, he's a great guy, and he's really nice, so... We had a lot of fun doing that, and um, <clears throat> we were supposed to get him on Wednesday. I ended up pushing it back to Friday, and I'm really glad that I could put that together before the weekend. So that was why the last episode, number 32, came out when it did, because well, that originally was going to be the day that I was going to do this interview, but we flopped some things around. But it was really fun. Like, fuck, that was awesome. Uh Really, it was good. And I don't think there's much I, I wish I had have asked him. Um, but I, I won't touch on it. Like I said, uh, we'll, be, we'll be kicking it over there pretty quickly. I'm free. I'm out of quarantine. And I'll be honest, it's it's very, very nice. Uh, staring at my phone a lot. Holy shit, man. Like, because my girlfriend's working. And yeah, she's working from home. But I don't see her, you know, other than she might pop her head out for lunch and say hello. I don't see her. So most of the days I'm hanging out alone. And I'm very good at entertaining myself. I got a lot of hobbies too. So honestly, the free time when you get from these quarantines is almost a blessing because it lets you do all these things you want to do. I love to play guitar. I love to do these pods. I love to fart around, love to read, do stuff like that and, and work out. And But there's these weird lulls you get when you're on quarantine where like, you know, you might pull out your phone and look at TikTok and the next thing you know, 45 minutes is melted away. And then you have that terrible feeling where you're, you know, you're, you're contemplating life. If that you are really into it anymore or if maybe maybe the internet's just grabbed hold of your brain and just turned it into literal dust that is what's happening to me over this past year but on the phone way too much you got to come up with some new app that just shocks me just literally electrocutes me with a thousand volts once you hold it for too long the thing just starts buzzing and you can't even pick it up until the next day when the electrical currency stopped flying out of your phone and i would turn that up to the point that it could kill me because it might come down to that I think we all need to take a little bit of a step away, okay? And if that means that the only time you go on the internet weekly is to listen to this show, that's fine. It might come to that. But I think we all could 
Step away from the gosh darn phones for a little bit, okay? Relax. Take a take a load off. Remember that the internet's fake and that nothing on here is real, okay? Remember that. Focus on your real life, okay? But that's I'm I'm very happy to be out of quarantine. Yesterday, went and got my haircut. It's the first thing I need I did. Uh, last time I got a haircut, I got a COVID within 16 hours afterwards. So I was lucky to go through this one, knock on wood, without any infection. Infections went quite uh, went smoothly. My barber in Stratford is an absolute legend. He is a beauty. He's a musician. He's a barber, and he he's a barber. Only cuts men's hair. I got to imagine that that is a way better way to go than cutting women's hair. Not sexist at all, but men don't give a fuck. You could, you, he, you ask for a four on the sides, the guy by accident puts a two and goes right up the middle of the stripe of your head. You might be pissed. You might not tip him that well, but your hair will grow back and you'll be fine. You do that to a woman, that's a crime scene investigation waiting to happen. My mother had a friend growing up, one of her close friends. She was a hairstylist, but she would only cut men's hair. Because she's like, I can't do the, I can't deal with the bitching. Women, something's wrong. They tell you, men, you might fuck it up. You might, you might not do a great job. He might not come back to you again. That's, that's the issue. You might have lost a customer, but he probably won't berate you to your face. With women, I think it's a different story. If someone messed up my girlfriend's hair and she was in that salon chair, you might feel the wrath of God. She might not be a big one, that girl. She might not be a big thunderous woman. But she'll bring the thunder down upon you if you mess up her hair. I can guarantee you that. Uh, but Jack's a beauty. That's what we call him. Jack. Should I say his name? No, I shouldn't. But I did. Um, he's a legend. And Jack is a bit of a musician. Likes to sing. I think I just said that. Uh, but he's in a band. And last time I got my hair cut there, um, we were talking about this. And I was like, oh, Jack, it's really too bad that I was taken off for hockey at the time. You know, I'd love to jam with you guys a little bit. Get some tunes flowing. So we start talking about music again now that I'm back in his chair. And he kind of hits me with a proposition that not to join the band per se, but if I practice up my chops, maybe I could hop on for a couple tunes with his band. Or maybe I could hop on for like an intermission and maybe just do like half an hour's worth of songs while him and his bandmates take a little break there. A little local establishment in the Stratford area. Maybe that could be something that could happen and, Kind of makes me a little nervous, though. He handed me his set list, which had a plethora of songs. I think each set list was about 23 songs. And he had one for he wants one for a mellow mood. You go up there as a, as a band, you're a gigging band, you have to read the room. Go in there, he reads the room. He has a set list for mellow, a mellow mood. He has a slightly upbeat playlist, and then he has an upbeat playlist. You know, when you, you can... You get the atmosphere in the room and you can feel it. These people want a buzz. They want a little bit of a jam. That's the playlist you go through. So basically almost 75 songs. And I mean, I'm I'm good. I'm not a great guitarist, but I'm a, I'd say I'm a good campfire guitarist. Like the perfect campfire guitarist. You know, I can play a lot of tunes that people would know. The problem is not great at remembering them. I don't play enough to remember all these songs, get them beaten into my head. So usually when I do play... You know, I throw the chords up and the lyrics up at the song I'm looking to play. And you look at it on your laptop, your phone, or whatever as you play. But you can't do that in live music. And that you can nowadays with all these new like phones and iPads. You, know, every, you see guys all the time now, live music. They got the iPad on the mic stand. And it's probably auto-scrolling. And it's got the music going up and down for them. That's great and all. That's probably not an option here. 
and I'm, and I'm going to go ahead and say you can't do that. So I'm looking at having to, if I want to play one of these set lists, which I'm assuming he's not going to want me to play 23 songs in a row with him. But just for fun, let's pretend I had to. Jeez, man. I know for a fact there's like there's like six songs that I can play on guitar and sing the lyrics to off by heart. There's like six in my repertoire, I'd say, that I can play anytime, anywhere without needing music or anything to look at. 23 in a row, is that's quite a step up, seeing as none of my six are on any of those 23 song set lists. So that's going to be an absolute war. I'm not sure how anyone can remember all that shit. Like, do you think that, like, Neil Young can... Like, Neil Young... This guy has 70,000 albums. If you didn't know, Neil Young has honestly made so much music, and I don't think I've heard of any of it since 1965. All of his hit songs were... He wrote them all in his 20s, probably. Don't quote me on it. I'm not looking at the stat sheet right now of when he's releasing, but he released all that shit when he was young. He has just been pumping out albums, like, nonstop. Do you think that he can go back and just play any song he's ever created off the top of his head, knowing it? Even though he created it? Like, I'm worried about 23 songs, but some of these guys who have, like, like the Beatles, Paul McCartney and the boys, they had over 200 songs. Can Paul and the lads just, without looking, just go back and play their least played song of that 200? Would they know it all as a band? Would they be able to go and play? That's just the cool thing. See, I feel like I'm not, a, I wouldn't call myself a musician, but I understand it being around it, taking guitar lessons, having been able to play a instrument, sort of understanding musical concept. That's why live music is so beautiful. That's why it's so amazing. You don't, you understand that there's hours and hours of practice that has gone in to be able to have this set list be played by a group of people to the point that it sounds good and amuses an audience. There's a fucking beautiful science behind that. And I think that I've played guitar recitals and stuff before where I've had to sing maybe one song in front of the rest of my guitar teacher's students, but never in a setting where, well, that's not true. I did host open mic nights and I talk about that a lot in the show, but I used to cheat. I used to play the open mic night and you couldn't see below my knees and you would, you would, I would sit down, I'd put a chair on stage, I would never stand and I would hide my laptop at my feet. And if I forgot the words, I'd look down and I'd have the lyrics there. But then one time someone called me out on stage about, hey, idiot, why are you looking at your laptop? And it, was, it got really awkward. So you just can't go through that anymore. So maybe I'll do that. I would love to. I think it's a challenge that I can't pass up. So hopefully I'm going to get my practice plan started. And I'm going to get cutting it up here, cutting up a rug because I got to get some live music being played. That's the only way you can get better. I was telling my girlfriend the other day, I have a plan for the future of my life. Been doing a lot of that thinking, you know, obviously on quarantine and stuff like that. But this is the plan of my life going forth. Not sure what it's going to entail, but it has three options, okay? And um, these are what those three options are going to be. The option number one is I could become a musician, uh, a successful musician who does quite well. That would be an option. Or I could become an actor. I st In the back of my head, I always think that I could become an actor. Maybe one day I'll give it a kick at the can. That's one of my options. The third option is I become some sort of business mogul, entrepreneur, where I create my own thing, create an entity that becomes a living, breathing business that becomes something impactful, meaningful to me. And those are the options right there. 
And I think whatever I want to have come, it has to be out of those three options. So that I've just laid out the groundwork there, folks, I guess. And I felt like maybe I should bring that to your attention, the viewer, so that you can hold me accountable. All right. Maybe that's something we can do as a group here. All right. But folks, I, I don't want to spend much time here. I'm a little giddy to hear the interview myself. I was part of it. and I want to hear it again. So without any further ado, let's toss it over to Nick Kiprios, who is now I might start just calling him God. I might refer to him as God from now on after this interview because I enjoyed it that much. Folks, this is um, episode 33. This is the interview interview segment. Let's kick it over there and let's see what we got because I, I had a great time doing it. Definitely, I've interviewed lots of people in the past. No discredit to any of them, but the, this was probably my favorite interview I've ever done in my time podcasting. My short tenure as a podcaster, this was one of my highlights for sure. So let's kick it over to the interview for episode number 33 of The Bodge. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd happily like to welcome our next guest of the project here for episode number 33. This gentleman played in 442 NHL games. He was a Stanley Cup champion as a member of the New York Rangers in 1994. He was also a Calder Cup champion in 1988 with the Hershey Bears. He's also a former OHL first team all-star and an overall absolute media mogul in the hockey industry. Folks, welcome Nick Kiprios to the project. Wow, Harrison. Uh, pretty impressive uh, introduction. Thank you very much, Mogul. I, I, I've, I've heard a lot of things. I don't think I've heard that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. I got to give a shout out to one of my former assistant coaches in the U, U Sports Hockey when I played in Nipissing University. I got to give a shout out to Kevin Vesio, an avid listener of the project, for getting me in touch with you. You guys were former teammates, so I appreciate him. That's how I kind of got this connection there, and. Uh, you were able to hop on. So I know you're a busy man, but I really appreciate you coming on this show. This is awesome. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. And uh, Kevin Vessio, of course, a good uh, Thunder Bay boy, uh, along with Rob DeGagne. We had such a good time uh, over the years playing junior A hockey in North Bay. Way back way when uh, I'm, I'm not, Harrison, I'm not sure where you were. Um, maybe you were just a twinkle in someone's eye back then, but uh, certainly. Uh, uh, great memories with Kevin and, and the whole uh, North Bay community uh, playing junior hockey. Absolutely. I'm not going to lie. I will make you touch a little bit on your time in North Bay, but I also have to mention, not on this podcast, but a, part of a podcast I did called The Lake Show for my university. We had another one of your former teammates on. We had Darren Turcott come on that show once, and we talked to him for a little bit. Is, is that a guy that you're still in touch with at all, Turcott? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We did uh, – Hometown hockey, which is uh, a staple on Rogers Sportsnet prior to the pandemic. And we got a chance to drive up to North Bay with my parents. And it was just great memories. And of course, uh, Darren Turcott was uh, very prominent uh, in the uh, telecast as well. I know he's coaching in the uh, girls hockey in, in the community there. And uh, all, every single one of his hockey players just spoke so highly of him. You know, he comes from a hockey family. His dad, Butch coached him uh, growing up in North Bay. And of course, we know that Darren went on to have a, a very good NHL career too uh, with the New York Rangers. So uh, great always going back there and, and staying in touch. Bill Holder, another uh, North Bay Centennial who went on and had a great pro career was is up there as well. So uh, I try to get up there as often as I can. Still very difficult uh, in terms of my scheduling, but when I can, it's like a second home to me. That's unreal. No, 
I think it's funny too. I gotta, I gotta bring it up. You got, you and Darren were actually traded. We were involved in a trade for one, one another, weren't you? And it was that from Hartford in New York. Is that in 1990? Was that five? No, I was. Uh, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was 1993, 94. Uh, it was the year that we won the Stanley Cup, and Darren Turcott was uh, Hartford. Uh, he went, he ended up in Hartford from New York with James Patrick. It was a three-way, uh, three-team deal that it also included the Chicago Blackhawks. So Steve Larmer and I ended up being in, in New York while Darren and James Patrick ended up in Hartford and, uh, former teammate of mine, Patrick Poulin and Eric Weinrich ended up in Chicago. So I, I think, I think I did it justice. Maybe a few draft picks or prospects involved, but that's pretty much the nuts and bolts of it. That's hilarious. I just, I was doing a little history check and I laughed. I was like, I never thought I'd interview two guys who were traded for one another at one point. Yeah. But um, I'd love to get into your career. Obviously we'll talk a little bit about that just to kind of set the tone here before we move on to other things. Like you mentioned you're a Toronto boy. Is, is it North York you're from or are you from right in Toronto? No, North York, uh, uh, just a little bit uh, North of Toronto uh, was uh predominantly the, the community that I grew up in went to public school, junior high, high school prior to getting drafted by the Kitchener Rangers, uh, out of, uh, uh, North York flame slash civic, uh, uh, organization in minor hockey, MTHL, GTHL. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was fun growing up. I went to uh, junior high with uh, Kirk McLean, who went on to have a great career with the Vancouver Canucks and is uh, often regarded as their best goalie uh, in history. And uh, he was uh, a guy that I played against. He was a Don Mills flyer. I was a North York Flames uh, uh, player. So we often uh, joke around about that over the years. But uh, really good community uh, to to play minor hockey and very competitive, still regarded as a uh, uh, one of the best draws uh, for for junior A and college hockey is the the greater Toronto area. It's highly competitive. That's never changed, Harrison, over the years. Yeah, yeah. Everyone talks about that area of town so much about how crazy it is for sports and growing up like that. Like when you were coming up, you were obviously an athletic kid. You know, were you playing multiple sports, or was hockey a real big focus for you just right from the get go as a young one? No, I. Uh, I played all sports. Uh, I was very active, very uh, athletic uh, kid that just uh, found ways to either, you know, kick a soccer ball or uh, dribble a basketball. Uh, hockey, of course, was my passion. I grew up a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. Uh, my dad was, and uh, I just wanted to uh, absorb it and play as much as I, I could. My heroes uh, were Daryl Sittler and Lanny McDonald. Uh, uh, guys that were prominent in the 70, late 70s, uh, early 80s. And uh, uh, while I was playing other sports, uh, I ultimately always fell back on the one that I was most passionate about, and that was the game of hockey. So once it started getting closer out of minor hockey towards a, a thought of playing competitive junior A hockey and then the thought of maybe even playing pro hockey, you never really know for sure, Harrison. So you take it year by year and you just hope that people notice you. And I was, I was lucky that that happened, uh, you know, quite frequently uh, playing throughout my minor hockey career. 
Absolutely. And I'm looking right here. It says you're born in 1966. Like when, do you find when you were a kid growing up, like did, was everyone playing hockey? Like, was that the one sport that just like, maybe not their whole lives, but everyone took their turn at least given the game a, a, a try at that around that time. Well, I think so. And I don't think that's changed over the years, especially here in Canada where there's such a rich history of it. So uh, now we got boys and girls playing uh, at early ages. But I think for the most part, you know, although it's never written in stone, you can get a sense at an early age whether or not someone's got a knack for it or understands the game or comes easier than it would to others. Uh, There's always going to be that separation that some kids just are are better at it than others. And of course, there's others that can hang in there and and buy their time and, and learn the game, learn the craft. Sometimes it's not about necessarily whether or not you, you are um, a talented hockey player or not, but maybe it, it revolves around uh, how serious you are or how committed you are. And all of that can be, you can be introduced at a later age to all of those things that can help you develop. And that was my case. I wasn't always the hardest working guy. I had a knack for scoring goals, but there are times when I was lazy or there's times that I was uncommitted and, Sometimes it got to the point where I thought maybe even I could quit hockey. So, listen, at the end of the day, uh, it's open for all kids to try. You hope still that some families can afford it. Uh, It is one of the more expensive team sports out there. Um, You know, it'd be great if it was as cheap as buying a baseball glove and a a cap and (laughs) and a baseball bat. But, you know, there's people out there working on maybe trying to find ways to, to... get the prices down but for the most part yeah it it's fun. it's nice to see kids trying it or being on the ice or you know the passion of it even speaking of it talking about NHL players who's going to win the Stanley Cup there's always seems to be a strong group of of kids around the game whether you're good at it or not yeah absolutely well especially growing up when you did and and where you did not no doubt um so you you make the change to uh you make the jump to junior you start out playing for the kitchener rangers and you know you don't you start out there for four games it says and then you make your way up to north bay where you spend the better part of you know three and a half four years tell us a little bit about like at that age like was did you have a lot of friends that were taken off to play junior you know leaving in the middle of high school or was that something that you just, you know, you knew needed to be done to, to play hockey at higher levels? Or was that something that was never really thought of, but when the opportunity presented itself, you know, you took it? Yeah, it, it really kind of works out that way at, at, at 14, 15, and 16. And, you know, it wasn't too much different than today where, you know, you're still on the ice two, three times a week, you know, four times a week. Now it's probably like six or every day you're on the ice with the opportunities that kids have when it comes to uh, programs or uh, schools or private sessions and all of that. But majority of the guys that I hung around with were hockey players and, and had that common interest. So by the time you're 15, 16 and 17, the focus, especially around, uh, my area was junior A hockey. So we had the Toronto Marlies playing out of Maple Leaf Gardens at the time, but we also knew of the Kitchener Rangers, the Oshawa Generals, you know, Belleville, all of these teams. Um, you, you, you got to kind of follow junior A a little bit, you know, when you thought that perhaps maybe 
you could play in the league one day. So when the opportunity arose and then I found myself in a position of uh, being told that uh, I could get drafted uh, to junior A hockey, then, then all of a sudden a pipe dream becomes a reality. So I got picked up by the Kitchener Rangers. I was their third pick in the fourth round. I went to training camp in Kitchener, went all the way through training camp, and I was the last player cut off the team. So I ended up getting reassigned to uh, their, their junior A affiliate, a provincial junior A team called the Mississauga or the Dixie Beehives. And I'm there for about, I don't know, three weeks. And then boom, Kitchener trades my rights up to North Bay. So uh, there I was with another player off of Kitchener driving up uh, Highway 400 and not knowing what I was going to get myself into, whether or not I was going to last five minutes or three years. Uh, I had no idea, but I'm thankful that my parents gave me the opportunity to go up there because uh, I go into it a little bit more detailed in my book, uh, Harrison. I, I was fortunate enough to write a book uh, for Simon & Schuster uh, last fall that's been out uh, the last few months. And I go into great detail about uh, the adversity that I was battling being one of the last players cut from the Kitchener Rangers and then finding myself uh, up in North Bay uh, just three weeks later. So a little bit of a topsy-turvy kind of uh, no, a no. path, but one that I, I don't regret and one that made me stronger as a, as a person off the ice and stronger uh, on the ice. That, yeah, that's in. I mean, you you come into the your first year, you get on with North Bay, you're producing at almost you know half a point per game, but then you start really turning it on the next couple of years. Like the one year, eighty five, eighty six, you had a sixty two goal season in sixty four games played, and I came to know about this because when I lived in North Bay, who now is the home of the North Bay Battalion, now they're reincarnated, Brampton moving up there, so not the same franchise, but. I think it was two or three years ago, Justin Brazaw, you might know the name. He sure. had 60 goals and everyone was eyeing your record because they thought that someone was going to score 60, beat 62 goals in, in you know, junior season in North Bay. Everyone was going nuts, but I, I still remember hearing that 62 goals in 64 games. Like that's just hilarious to look at. Like what was it like in, in, in that, in those days for you? Like you must've been literally dominating games. Well, first of all, I was really pushing for him to break the record. Uh, you know, it's, I, and I, I mean that in, in all honesty, uh, it's, it's one of those things that the longer I have the record, the older I feel and I want to feel young. Yeah. So I, I, I was hoping he was going to break the record, but uh, a few, a few guys have come close. I think there was a late, uh, late nineties or early two thousands, maybe, uh, uh, Vitaly Yaka, Yaka. Oh, I can't even remember his last name, but, uh, someone came close at 60 goals as well. And, uh, I know that, uh, it's going to get broken one day. It's just going to have, it will happen. It's just a matter of when, but, uh, I, I didn't think it would hold on this long, but I had great players around me. Darren Turk got, uh, Dave McElwain, Len Socio, Rob Degagne, Ron Sanko. I mean, I played with some really talented people. And there's just, there's just no way that you score that many goals without uh, kind of the stars falling uh, in all the right places. Uh, it was fun. It was fun putting the puck in the net for them. 
you know, uh, we thought we came close to a, a Memorial Cup uh, one year. We lost to uh, the Oshawa Generals uh, in a game seven for the second time. We had two game seven series against them. One was just to host the Memorial Cup. And then one was for the OHL championship. And unfortunately, we fell short. The injury bug. I've never seen a team lose so many guys in such a short period of time. Darren Turcott ended up uh, separating his shoulder. When we lost Darren Turcott, I, I knew we were in trouble. But great memories and That's a fun unreal. run. I couldn't imagine. And what was it like back then, like the old Memorial Gardens? Like, were, were you guys packing the place? Was, was, yeah. North oh, Bay no, must have been right into it. It was. And we knew the rich history there with uh, the North Bay Trappers. And then when there was a chance for uh, North Bay to get, get a team, uh, uh, Hamilton, I believe, was uh, uh, or Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, sorry. It was Hamilton, Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls, North Bay, if I, if I remember it correctly. Uh, and they ended up uh, getting the franchise up there that uh, there was a rich history up there. Yeah, for sure. So during our run, you know, 3,500, close to 4,000 people in that, in that uh, memorial uh, arena was, uh, it, it was, it was great. It was, it was rocking. And uh, I still feel bad that we fell a little short, uh, but uh, for the most part, uh, wouldn't change anything. Oh, that's, I, I, I could only imagine it. It'd, it'd be such good times. Like you got to tell us a little bit about what was the day-to-day -day life of a major junior hockey player in the late eighties? Cause I mean, I played major junior a couple of years ago and it was pretty strict, but I always, I always thought like, maybe I was born in the wrong era. Can you touch on like, what, what would it be like when you're playing in North Bay? Like what would your daily routine have looked like back in the late eighties? Well, one of the deals that uh, Bert Templeton, the late Bert Templeton, who was the coach and general manager up in North Bay at the time, uh, you know, he had to convince my mom that uh, she was, she's going to let me go up there. So he made it abundantly clear he's up here for two things, and that's to go to school and play hockey, and that's it. And uh, he'll do it for me, and he's not going to get traded anywhere. He's not going to get moved around or bounced around anymore. And um, sure enough, she she went for it. So, you know, we were at school uh, when we weren't on the ice, uh, like any other high school kid. And, of course, because we're in, in the northern part of the, uh, the province, you know, our, our, our hours on the bus were a lot more than, say, Belleville or Peterborough or Toronto or, you know, Kitchener. Trips were a little longer. Um, so it was just a balance of that. And then, yeah, sometimes you come home off uh, playing in the Sioux and you didn't feel like getting up the next morning and going to school. So uh, you just hope that you could have good communication with your teachers so they understand that and you wanted to stay on top of it. My mom really wanted me to graduate high school. I was able to do that. And um, because I turned pro after my junior career, uh, you know, college or university was in the back, back burner. But for the most part, it was, it was about school and, and hockey uh, back mm -hmm. then. And, of course, you're part of a team. So, you know, your community is revolved around the, the players on the team. And uh, I enjoyed every second of it. Uh, I lived and breathed the game of hockey, uh, as, as most players do when they play junior A hockey. But as we know, Harrison, not everybody gets to go on and have a pro career or make millions of dollars. But you, you got to make sure that you have a good balance in your life. And even in junior A hockey, it has to include school.
Yeah, for sure. So you, you, you did, like you just said, you went straight to pro right out of junior and you're coming off. Like I said, we touched on the 62 goal year. That was when you were 19, you play another half year with, cause you were up in the AHL for about half your 20 year old year, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, I ended up only playing, I think, 10 games and then came back to North Bay as, a, as an overage. And I think I scored 49 goals in something like 45 games. So, um, you know, and that was another year of development. And again, you know, in my book, I just wanted to stress that uh, it's just more than anything, it's battling your adversity and, and how many times you get knocked down isn't as important as how many times you get up. And I was able to come back and play another half a year uh, as an overage and go on a nice run uh, and, and hopefully win a Memorial Cup. And as I said, we just fell short a little bit of that. Uh, but it was all about, uh, you know, the development of, of being stronger mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And uh, I was able to go back to uh, Hershey the following year and that's when we won the, the Calder Cup in, in 1988. And I think I scored 24 goals that season, had led the team in game-winning goals with seven. And uh, that's when I really thought that maybe I could make a living out of this uh, as a professional hockey player for, for a long time. And I ended up playing uh, 12 years pro. Yeah, that's unreal. Like, before we touch on, like, a little bit more of your career that uh, transpired after, your, you know, you turned pro – what was it like, you know, you go from the OHL, you're tearing the roof off the league, and then it's 87, 88, and you make the jump to, you know, the AHL full-time at 21. Like, I mean, you still had a pretty good year. Like you just said, 24 goals in 71 games. Was that, like, what was the jump like? Like, that, I just always have to ask people like, like that. Like, just coming from major junior, you, you make that jump to pro. You were, t- like, you're, you're still putting up good numbers, but, like, was it, was it a crazy change for a 21-year-old? Like, what was it like? Just kind of walk. Well, I think for, for me, I was always a, a fairly strong guy physically. So I think I could handle, you know, the, the hitting and, and, you know, the fighting for pucks. It, for me, it was just a little bit more um, emotional and, and knowing that you could play against the, these guys, really play against them and compete against them and, and come out every once in a while with the puck. Uh, it's, it's a mental thing for a lot of guys. And for me, uh, my early days at Philadelphia Flyer training camp, it was like, I was like a super fan, man. I was just like, I don't know whether to check you or ask you for your autograph. I mean, <laughs> I'm watching these guys like Tim Kerr, Mark Howe, um, some of the best hockey players in the NHL. And now you're trying to picture yourself as being an equal. And that's not an easy thing to do. And there's a maturation level that you have to hit and for some it comes a little easier and for some it, it takes a little bit of time now we're seeing seeing Harrison some guys not playing their first NHL game until they're 25 or 26 in my era growing up that never happened man you were you were old at 22 or 23 they would have written you off at, at that age they would have mm-hmm. said not not a chance this guy's going to play for my team his first NHL game when he's 25 or 26 and of course we know that's happens mm-hmm. a lot these days but uh, the adjustment of the speed of the game, of course, we're, we're dealing with the best of the best now, right? It's just, a, it's a constant uh, process of elimination. So we, you, you get your top four or five guys on each junior team 
go on to play professional hockey. Now they've all collected together in the American Hockey League. So you're up amongst the best of the best, and that's not even the best of the best because they're in the NHL. So it's just every every layer, every every level is a new challenge. And once you get over that challenge, and once I was able to win the Calder Cup and score some goals, get into some battles, fight on an occasion, now your confidence has really grown to go to the NHL. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you just touched on that right at the end of your, your statement there. Like, I see a little bit of a pattern. Like, you know, you always put up, you know, some points for sure. But you had a couple of penalty minutes too. Like, you know, one year you were over 100 pims there and when you played in North Bay. But you can kind of see like your first couple of years of pro, you know, you are putting up some pims. But then, you know, something changes. All of a sudden your pims take a significant jump. Was that something that you added to your game? Like you thought, like is, you do add that physicality maybe as you ramp it up, was it always there? Or was that maybe a tool you put in your box a couple of years in the pro where you're like, this might help me play a little more? Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, you, you've, you've nailed it that uh, at, at a certain point, you know, when I was uh, struggling a little bit to put the puck in the net, I just, you know, it just kind of dawned on me that uh, we've had a lot of guys in junior hockey score 50 goals and 60 goals. And yet, if they don't score right away or show that they have the ability to score right away, they get rid of you. So I, I want it to bring a different dimension. Now, if I'm a guy that someone thinks that they can score but isn't presently scoring, well, in the meantime, I can play a physical role. I can take the body. I can create good energy. I can stand up for my teammates. That has value. So if I show value outside of putting a puck in the net, then there's I'm going to make it harder for them to get rid of me. So mm-hmm. that's how it kind of started when I was with the Washington Capitals. Brian Murray was a tough coach, but he always felt like at times he was getting pushed around by the Philadelphia Flyers. So he goes out and gets a, a prospect from the Philadelphia Flyers. He claimed me off of the waiver wire uh, from Philadelphia to the Washington. And then the next thing you know, I'm, I'm battling against the Philadelphia Flyers, guys that I've been hanging out with uh, every training camp for four or five years. Not an easy thing to do, but you got new teammates, and that's who your your loyalty uh, lies with. And you start battling the Philadelphia Flyers. So I was happy to kind of come in and, and add another dimension to my game. So, like, was, was that something that you just kind of figured out on your own, or was there maybe a coach or someone that kind of said, hey, Kipper, you know, you mixing a couple of tilts, like, you might make yourself that much more attractive as a, you know, a piece to any team? Was, or was that something that internally you just kind of figured out? No, I, 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 I internally figured it out on my own, but uh, I, I, rec- I can recall one night specifically. We're in New York City, and I ended up fighting Chris King. Um, it was a pretty tough guy. You know, not super heavyweight like myself, but a good middleweight. <laughs> and uh, Flyers were running around and Chris King was running around. And I met him at center ice and, you know, the famous two words in hockey, let's go. And we had a pretty spirited fight. And uh, I just remember the next day at training camp or the next day at practice where Brian Murray calls me over and he just was raving about me you know, standing up for a teammate and 
that's the stuff that we need to to show people that we're not pushovers and that we're going to be a tough team to play against. And uh, I just remember it making me feel Harrison mm-hmm. like really good, really important, and really needed. And uh, I just told Brian, listen, when there's opportunities to stand up for teammates, uh, I'll always be there for them. And that's how it kind of just started and uh for the most part i i think it it helped me in my career be ultimately not the 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 scoring star that i was in junior but i could be a glue guy i could be a great guy on the ice to stand up for my teammates i could be a great guy in the dressing room i i'm good for morale uh spirit energy all of that's needed you don't need 20 mark messiers out there harrison Mm -hmm. you just you need a little bit of everything that's awesome. So I, I just love hearing that, you know, your like mindset behind it, obviously having lived it. Now, I never, I never played in the NHL or anything like that, but, you know, I've, done, I've been in some fights. Now, was, was fighting something that bothered you? Like, would you be anxious nights before if you thought maybe there'd be a chance of you fighting? Or was fighting just something that, you know, was the heat of the moment for you and not something that took a lot of time on you or I guess was hard on you emotionally, I guess I'm saying? No, I was okay with it. Uh, you know, I, I in, in my book, Undrafted, I talk about a couple of early fights where I just I got the snot beat out of me, you know, by older players like uh, uh, Steve Thomas in an exhibition game in junior, uh, David Bruce in a training camp in Kitchener. And just knowing that I didn't like the feeling of it, of, of being beat up and, and how I wanted to kind of learn it a little bit and, you know, talk to people and how do I get better balance? How do I throw a better punch? Mm-hmm. So I asked a few people uh, uh, that and I got some feedback and I was willing to go in there and I, I came from the belief that, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, a broken nose, a black eye, um, you know, obviously as the guys got bigger and stronger, you know, concussions mm-hmm. came into play and, you know, but for the most part, you know, if it's, ignorance is bliss i just went out there and said it's okay if i lost a fight i i kind of felt worse if i didn't show up or i didn't stand up for a teammate or just you know lie down like a dog uh, that 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 to me is worse than taking a, a punch in the face so i was i was a willing participant and uh i didn't lose a lot of sleep over it because i at the end of the day i i didn't i, I didn't think it would sink or swim you know, just based on the fight that there's other elements that I could skate, I could forecheck, mm-hmm. I could, I've, I've scored goals in the past. I've scored goals in junior and American hockey. Like I can find a way to put a puck in the net, which happened when I went to Hartford because I scored 17 goals one season. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like it was just um, another, another thing that I could do, but I didn't overemphasize it like other tough guys did because that was all that they were there for. Mm-hmm. They lived and breathed it because, you know, they knew their pay- paycheck was solely on that. As a guy that went out there, I just, I, I used fighting as one of three or four things that I could do on the ice. So I didn't, I didn't fret over it. That's such a good point. I guess I never, like you, you just, you, you literally just put it perfectly. Like, you know, you had other parts of your game to fall back on. So maybe that's why, you know, the sleepless nights weren't there as much because you knew, the paycheck wasn't only coming and relying on you dropping your gloves every night. So I actually, that was really cool. I, I appreciate that. Cause that was, that was awesome. But 
you know, going back onto what you said, you know, you, you, you came with Washington, you, you go there from the Flyers, and then you make your way to Hartford. You're only there for a year and a half before you go to New York. But was that kind of the same scenario? Like, did Hartford go out and grab you because, you know, they wanted what you could provide on their team? Well, I, I joke around with uh, Brian Burke because that was the first trade he ever made uh, <laughs> with the Washington Capitals and, and Hartford. He just uh, became the general manager uh, from the Vancouver Canucks and traded myself, uh, traded for me and, and sent uh, Mark Hunter and uh, Ivan Corvo uh, to Washington. So when I, uh, when I got traded there, he, you know, Brian Burke's style, right? Mm-hmm. Heavy, uh, truculent. So I knew that and I didn't mind that at all. But, you know, I, I told him that uh, I wanted to play more than I did in Washington. And I think I could put the puck in the net. And uh, sure enough, I ended up with 17 goals that year. And I also ended up with 325 penalty minutes. And Unreal. I was, uh, I was really gunning for a 20-goal season with over 300 penalty minutes, Harrison. And yeah. I think there was only five guys in history that have ever done it. Probert and Paul Holmgren and maybe Tiger Williams. And, You're talking uh, 320 goals? 20 goal season and over 300 penalty Did Shanahan minutes. ever do that? Uh, I don't think Brendan Shanahan ever had 300 penalty minutes. I know he had season. a 200 and a 50 goal season yes. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, which is incredible. Which is foolish. Uh, never Rick Tockett was another big oh. scorer who, who had large penalty minutes, but not over 300. 300 that's mistaken that's those are big boy minutes we will never yeah. see anyone t- come anywhere near no. that again no, not even close so <laughs> i uh i ended up with 17 goals and i pulled my abdominal muscles with about uh, i don't know 10 games to go maybe um and uh, unfortunately i never got to 20 goals but i, I think i, I could have done it if i oh i didn't know healthy. you were hurt that's brutal yeah um, I have to ask, 325 PIMs, like that's amazing. Were they counting tens back then? Would that count towards your PIMs? Yeah, they would. So I still got to ask, like, that's got to be a busy year for you. Like, what's it look like in 75 games, like getting that many penalties? Was it hilarious? Did you feel like you were making a trip across the ice? In the Actually, box? no, I, I, it's not that you counted or that you knew you were going uh, – you know, you're chasing any records. I think Tory Robertson was the – the penalty minute leader. And I only knew that because, you know, hard, hardcore Hartford Whaler fans kept telling me that, that he was at about 318, 319. So I just fell short of that team record. Um, but again, I was more interested in maybe just trying to get to 20 goals than, yeah. than sitting in the <laughs> penalty box. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things where you thought maybe that the stars were going to align, but I wasn't out there chasing more penalty minutes. I wasn't trying to pick fights. I was just trying to do what, a, what came natural to me. So oh. it, was a, it was a fun year. We had a, we had a lot of tough guys on the team. Um, uh, you know, Jim, Jimmy McKenzie was a heavyweight, a true, true heavyweight. Uh, but we also had other guys that could drop their gloves. Even our captain, Pat Verbeek, was tough. And, you know, I mentioned Rick Tockett and, you know, some of these guys that could score goals but also fight. You know, Pat, I'm, Pat I'm Verbeek so, was a guy that could rack up penalty minutes too. I'm so happy you said his name because I actually meant to bring him up earlier and I would have forgotten unless you said his name. Like, there were guys like Verbeek and, and Tockett, like, 
we're talking 300 pin like point per game seasons like regularly yeah like that like that's yeah. unbelievable can you like what was those Pat were Verbeek true like? true harrison power forwards that's right amazing. brendan shanahan oh. uh kevin stevens could drop his gloves he was tough kevin oh. stevens scoring 50 goals uh number one all-star left winger so if we just don't see those guys anymore it's, right? it's too bad. Like, that's just such a thing of beauty that I don't think, like, you have to love hockey to even really respect how amazing that is, what they were doing. Yeah, like, it was, uh, it was a, a, a part of the game that uh, in, in the perfect world you love, right? You could, mm-hmm. you know, beat them on the ice or beat them in the alley. Uh, yeah. But there was, there, was an, there was an element to that, and, and hardcore fans loved it. Uh, I, I mean, I appreciate this speed of the game and the skill level but as far as uh you know hardcore uh hockey uh it, it has gotten softer over the years we know that oh yeah no 100 percent. i mean that doesn't even need to be addressed you can you can just kind of tell but what are your thoughts on uh, i guess the current state of fighting i mean it's up a little bit this year but like what do you, what are your thoughts on where it is and, and unfortunately where it could be going? I well, I'm okay. I'm okay where it is because you know ultimately we 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 got to play the game the way we wanted it to, and in, in terms of you know, I mean, there's certain boundaries of the rules and the regulations and the dimensions of the ice and and all of that, and uh, um, you know, we gotta we gotta abide by the rules and. But we also wanted to police ourselves. We also wanted to be in a position that we could take care of business and send messages when we felt that they were needed. The players today, they don't want to send those messages. They, I, for whatever reason, they, you know, they'll do what they want to do, say what they want to say on the ice, but they don't have that, 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 that feel, I guess, of uh, an eye for an eye. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, and, and listen, I mean, I have, I have kids, I, you know, I don't necessarily abide to that in society, but in hockey, you know, you want to take a run at my top star, I'm going to take a run at your top star. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if there's a chance that you know that, maybe you're not going to take a run at my 100%. star and, and we can eliminate that. But, you know, different different strokes for different folks. They, yeah. There is an element. The, the most important thing, Harrison, is that it's, it's there if they need it. Mm-hmm. They, they, don't, they, they don't appear to need it often, but at least it's still there for some of the guys that, that feel like it, it might be necessary to kind of curtail a little bit of uh, shenanigans uh, mm-hmm. on the other team. Do you foresee fighting still being part of the NHL in 10 years? I, that's a hard question because now, uh, you know, we don't know where it's going with legalities. You know, where are we with concussions? Where are we with CTE? Where are we uh, insurance companies? Will mm-hmm. they even insure anymore? I, I mean, I, I don't know, but all I know is organically it's kind of fading away mm-hmm. and that's okay. Um, for me, if the players don't want to use it, don't want to look for it, that's okay. You're the ones playing, not me anymore. You mm-hmm. get to decide. Hundred percent. Do you think that you know the little bit of a spike here? Obviously, that could be attributed to the you know the divisions being arranged yeah. how they are and whatnot. I think so. I mean, there's more on the line, and and we still have guys like Tom Wilson, and you know we we got some tough players out oh, there. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Kachuk. Uh, you know, there's a few guys that want to f- 
fight Matthew Kachuk yeah, in Calgary because yeah. he can drive you nuts. So, like I said, if if you have a few players that still like it or still want to use it and try to intimidate, um, it's there for you. Now, one last question I'll ask you about fighting Kipper. Do you foresee the potential of the increase of fighting in this past season to continue to the point that maybe one team goes out and maybe starts the pinnacle of a brand new arms race in the NHL where we <laughs> might see the boys load up to increase fighting even more? Boy, Harrison, that's uh, – I know uh, a lot of my listeners on uh, my my – youtube channel show real kipper noon that that would be like music to their ears because they they love their tough hockey but you know even if somebody wanted to and let's okay for argument's sake me and you were sitting here and and who do we put at the top because in my era it was bobby probert right yeah so mm -hmm. I, I gotta think now off coming off his recent uh, seven game suspension that we put tom wilson is still the uh the league bad boy yeah so you know, whether or not you feel like uh, you need to go get Ryan Reeves or more players of that to go out there and kind of, you know, have a missile to knock out another missile. The only question I say is, even if you wanted that or, or, or had that attitude, how many guys are out there anymore that could still do that or want to do that? Mm -hmm. At least with Tom Wilson, you know, he, we know he can fight. We know he can hit. But guess what? He can also skate and he can also play on the first, you know, two lines and he can score. And he is a very valuable piece to Ovechkin and Backstrom and, um, and, and their whole hockey club. So I just don't know if they're out there, Harrison. I, I don't know how many kids today are willing to say, I want to be the next Tom Wilson. They all think that there's, going to be the next Pat Kane with uh, their, their super duper skills coaches and their uh, yeah. stick handling and all of that. I just, I just don't see enough players out there in the system that, uh, that could warrant a, a general manager or a team saying, we're changing it up, we're going tough. I'm not even sure where you would look for these kids anymore. Mm -hmm. I was... I was having the conversation like building off of exactly what we were talking about with a friend the other day. And I said, we might have to just someone like that Gabriel on San Jose or Ryan Reeves. We have to, as an internet hockey community band behind maybe one of them and buy a bunch of their jerseys and make them the face of the NHL. And then maybe <laughs> kids are going to grow up and be like, I want to be the bad boy well, fighter everyone loves. They are popular. Yeah. You go to their, their, their rinks. There are Ryan Reeves jerseys. There are Tom Wilson's. Uh, you know, I got to play a brief time with the Toronto Maple Leafs, man. There was just as many Domi jerseys as there were Gilmore jerseys. Oh, I like They are popular guys. New York, I had Joey Kosher. People love Joey. In, in their heyday, it was the Bruce brothers, Joey Kosher and Bob Probert, mm -hmm. more popular than Stevie Eiserman jerseys. Oh, so, no. you know, it's, it's out there. <laughs> we don't have as many characters in the game as we used to. Um, but, you know, when we do, I agree with you. Maybe we should celebrate them a little bit <laughs> like yeah. we did in the old days. We got we to gotta sell them a bit better, maybe. Um, what last couple of things I want to ask you about your um, playing career before we touch on a little bit about what you've done since then. 
I um, I hope I'm not taking you for too long. I'll no, show we're you. good. I we're yeah, good. I don't want to take I, up your whole I, day here. No, I got some I got some work done, so uh, we're good. I got the, the, the my show's uh, been done. Doug McLean's been put to bed till the next time I use them. <laughs> it's all good. Perfect, perfect. So we touched on you going to Hartford after Washington, and then you get traded mid-season to the New York Rangers to what turned out to be a, a Stanley Cup winning run. Tell us a little bit about that season and more importantly, I guess, the run itself and the legendary locker room. There was Hall of Fame galore going on there. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, it's, uh, I, I came from a struggling Hartford team to, uh, from the outhouse to the penthouse, as I like to say. <laughs> um, it was remarkable walking in that room for the first time and I'd never met Mark Messier before. Uh, and to be greeted with him, and just the aura that he carries as a as a professional hockey player and one of a, a caring human being, uh, you noticed it the moment you walked in the room and and how he works and how he operates and how he's so in tune to people around him in the room. Uh, it was a it was an incredible run, one I was happy to be a part of. The thing that stood out for me the most that year Harrison was the fact that so many guys came together to, to have one common goal and that's when the Stanley cup. And we had a lot of guys come from various teams where we had much more individual success. I was coming off a, a 17 goal season, Glenn Healy, you know, the prior year before that was a member of the New York Islanders in one of the biggest upsets in history when he beat out uh, Mario Lemieux in game seven. Uh, for the Islanders to get to a, a conference final against Montreal and Eddie Olchuk and Doug Lidster and a lot of these guys who are used to playing regularly now have been come in and taken on lesser roles but we all did it happily to check our egos at the door to be a part of something historically um, you know is going to be remembered for a long long time and that's to win a Stanley Cup for a team that hadn't won it in 54 years. So we were happy to do that. And uh, the character in the room, you mentioned the Hall of Famers, but there were Hall of Fame attitudes in that room. And that's what it takes to win is being able to just not think about how something affects you individually, but how it affects the team as a whole. And 54 years is a long time between championships and we were constantly reminded of that by the fans and we wanted to do something really special because we knew it would live forever and, and it still does. Here I am 54 years old and there isn't a day that goes by that I don't feel like a Stanley Cup champion. That's unreal. That's legendary. I mean, you could go through the, I was looking at the roster, like it's, it's foolish. And you mentioned like, obviously you guys had a incredible room to be able to put together, you know, the team that goes out and wins the Stanley cup, but I'm counting right now. One, two, you guys had eight guys that had over 20 goals that year. Yeah. You had a guy who does not get talked about enough ever. I find is Sergei Zubov defenseman leading that team in scoring. That guy's a folk hero from the Harrison. Do, do you know, he, he started the year in the minors that season. That season, he started in the minors. No, I Mike didn't. Keenan was so pissed off at him that he sent him to the minors uh, and then called him up 
right after that. But you tell me the last time a guy started his season in the American Hockey League and then ended up leading his team in scoring. I'm so glad you said that because I certainly did not know that. But is, it, is the story true about him? Was he the guy that smoked cigarettes and stuff like that? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, that's old school Russians, right? Um, some of them like their darts, you know, <laughs> even in between periods. Uh, but, you know, uh, these guys were awesome. Uh, uh, Nemchinov, Zuboff, Alex Kovalev, you know, Karpatsov, we lost him unfortunately in a in a uh the airplane going down in the khl that's brutal um these guys were the first russians uh to put their names on the stanley cup that was a big deal they were the first ones part of history no russians have ever won the stanley cup our 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 russians were the first you know oh that's pretty cool um wonderful guys good team guys i got to dress uh beside zuboff all season long, uh, talented guy. And I'm glad the, the hall of fame recognized that the last few years and put him in Alex Kovalev, Pat Kane, like hands, uh, this guy was next generation stuff, you know, and then good role players like Nemchinov. It was, uh, it was a nice fit, right? They, they, they fit right in, uh, you know, in, in, in the grand scheme of things for us as, uh, as uh, the big picture. That's unreal. And I mean, you got like, there's just too many names on there. You could just say, you could just go flat down through the whole roster and just keep dropping yeah. names. Cause there's so many great guys that were part of that team. What was the, what was the, it like? On, the, 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 the best part about the, uh, our, our Russian group was uh, the Stanley cup party. Uh, they threw for us in Brighton beach, which is uh, the Russian community of New York city. This thing was uh, a 12 course meal. That included, uh, you know, live entertainment. It was still is the best uh, par- uh, party I've ever been to in my whole life. Did the Russian fellas on the team put that together, or was that? Oh yeah, the, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's I don't know amazing. what they. I don't know what they ended up paying for it. You know, I mean, fifty grand, seventy-five grand. Uh, you know, um, Russian caviar, <laughs> right? Uh, all of it. It was something like I've never seen in my whole life. It was fantastic. I can only imagine the, the, the run of parties you guys got into after that year. What was it like winning the Stanley Cup at – you guys win it at home in MSG? Yeah, yeah, game seven at home. What was it like? Well, what, tell us a little bit about the, the after Yeah, party. it was just, you know, one party after another. Uh, you know, we ended up at a, a small bar on the east side that was owned by good friends of ours. Uh, and Mark Messi and, and Brian Leach had a piece of the bar as well. Uh, Johnny B was uh, a legendary uh, supporter of ours, a good friend of ours. Uh, we went back to his bar. Now we're starting to see, you know, celebrities at the door trying to get in, um, you know, models because New York City, uh, actors. It was incredible um, to be in a position of now watching people know about the Stanley Cup in in new york city in the drought of 54 years and then from one night to another it went to you know sports illustrated hosting a party for you uh you know espn all of it uh thrown out the first pitch at yankee stadium i got to do that with mark and brian leach it just it didn't stop it worked its way out to the beach house uh, mtv beach house in the hamptons i'm like 
you know, two, three weeks of this, I'm like, I, I gotta, I gotta get out of this town, man. I'm not, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> two or three weeks craves i think it'd be hard to not do 27 years of an after party after bringing the cup home in new york i could only imagine that must have been literally unreal and i just like i hear so much about that team not only the name because of the names that we were talking about but also like you said that being such a big drought and new york being such a sports mecca and being able to do that at, on the ice at msg like that's crazy so i mean if i was you Kipper too. I'd be yeah. feeling like a Stanley Cup champion every day the rest of my yeah. life. Well, well, it's still like you know we we have historically had Hall of Fame players that have had 15, 20 year careers, you know, and, and guys with great careers. But uh, for whatever reason, it doesn't lend the percentages to winning the Stanley Cup, and just it's got to be in the right place at the right mm -hmm. time. The stars have got to kind of align for you a little bit, but you know, there's not too many guys that have gone on to have really good careers get to win a Stanley cup. That's, that's something sometimes is out of your control. It's mm -hmm. just a matter of, uh, of being in the right place at the right time. And that certainly felt that way for me in New York, but I was so happy to kind of live it because it, it's something that you do carry the rest of your life. When people look at you and they look at you as if you have the secret recipe to mm -hmm. being a champion and, and what it takes and, and, and all of that. And it's helped me post career, especially with uh, the broadcasting that uh, I came off being a part of a, like I said, a historic uh, championship mm -hmm. in New York city. That's unreal. It's, it's so crazy. And I think that's, a, that's a perfect segue to maybe move on to how, how you did make that into such a, you know, you, you take that transition, you turn into a successful broadcasting career. You end up going from New York and you, you, is it 95, 96, you get traded to Toronto and then you end up finishing out what I got to imagine is every Toronto boys dream as a hockey player. You got to finish it out with the, the maple leaf on your chest. T tell us a little bit about how that was getting to finish off playing there. Well, at the time, I was uh, only the 88th player in history to be born in Toronto and play for the Leafs. So uh, I don't like the odds for any kid playing hockey today in in, in Toronto uh, at seven at the age of seven or eight. But in saying that, uh, it was a huge thrill. Same putting on the same jersey as my hero, Daryl Sittler or Lanny McDonald, was uh, the ultimate. Unfortunately, it's one of those scenarios too that. Uh, you know, to really absorb it or, or maximize it like I did in New York, you got to win championships. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it was trending in the opposite direction. You know, on the way out was players like Gilmore and Kirk Muller and Dave Anderchuk and Dave uh, Ellett, uh, Todd Gill. So, you know, it, it, it was bottoming out at the time that I got traded there. But it, I, I was able to parlay that into a broadcasting career in Toronto. Uh, that's where the, the Sportsnet studio was based out of. And uh, I was able to, you know, hang in there for about 21 years and then uh, start moving in different directions again. But it, it was all part of, uh, I guess, the master plan of, uh, of staying in hockey now for, what, uh, 35, 40 years professionally. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's a blessing too. And, I mean, as a fan of the work you've done. I'm definitely glad, glad you took that route to go to broadcasting after your playing career. Cause I feel like you, I grew up like, I feel like as a kid, like I've grown up watching you always on the TV, 
But I think at one point, I, I honestly, when I was really young and when I, I, when I found out that you were a player also, I thought it was so cool because I found you always had such a great voice. Like you have that broadcasting voice and, you know, you're very good at what you do. Was that something that, I mean, I, I've heard your interview on, on Spit and Chicklets where you talk about it, you know, pretty in depth, but was it something that you saw yourself doing or thought of when you were still playing? Or was that kind of something that just came about the moment you maybe got some opportunities post-playing? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Uh, and, and sometimes players are so worried about being in the, in the present and the here and now that they don't even think about their futures or they don't think about what they're going to do after. They just hope that it looks after itself. But, you know, there was a, also a part of me that always played like it could be my last shift, uh, whether or not I get hurt or whether or not uh, they don't want me anymore. Uh, but, you know, what are the plans moving forward? So I always thought about uh, a broadcasting career. Of course, there was always ex-players that have done it well in the past, not only just in hockey, but in other sports as well. So I knew that there were some opportunities, especially being in such a, a mecca like Toronto. It's a media mecca. And there's a new station starting up in Toronto called Headline Sports. And actually, I got, I got uh, talking to them. And, and because I was so forthcoming to the media and always available and spoke probably a little deeper than other players in terms of the depth that I wanted to go, some guys just answer a quick question and want to get the heck out, which is great mm -hmm. because that's all they want to give. I always kind of gave more of myself a little bit. So they always told me that, you know, if there's any opportunities to do more on headline sports, would you be willing to do it? And I said, yes. So one year we got knocked out uh, early and uh, I ended up doing some work on headline sports. And that kind of gave me the bug to say, if in fact that, uh, you know, at any point in my career is over, could I, could I do this? Could I, could I put myself in a position to be, involved in, in, in the media and broadcasting. And, and sure enough, by 1998, a, a second all sports station had started called Sportsnet. And I auditioned for it with other players, ex-players. And I, I don't know, to this day, I still ask my, uh, the, my boss that hired me, Scott Moore, um, what he saw in me, but uh, he picked me. So uh, that's, that was the start of it, Harrison. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That was, that's just kind of something that, like you say, the rest is history. You just kind of got a little bit of a knack for it, or did you have to really practice, get a bit of a skill set behind the mic? Well, there's a good story in my book uh, talking about how I got fired in my first year. And uh, uh, no, it didn't come easy. So uh, I will say that, that it did take practice. It took repetition. Uh, in a perfect world, Harrison, you go to school and you study broadcasting and you understand the dynamics of uh, one or two cameras or having a, something called an IFB in your ear where they give you instructions and you, but you're mm -hmm. carrying a conversation at the same time. So uh, I didn't have that luxury, but you know, when you've played 12 years of professional hockey, they want your stories and your experience. You just not necessarily know how to, how to portray that you know, in front of a camera, in front of a million people. So a lot of bumps and bruises. Like I said, the adversity uh, that I f faced in my hockey career, I was now facing in broadcasting. So 
I didn't know whether I was going to get to that second year or not, but uh, I managed to hold on to my job and then probably what, uh, you know, 10, 11 years later, I'm, I'm broadcasting uh, Sidney Crosby's uh, gold medal game in Vancouver, you know, doing Stanley Cups, mm-hmm. uh, Hockey Night in Canada. And that was uh, on something that I didn't know was going to last uh, 20 minutes or 20 years. Yeah. So with, when you got like first involved, was it, um, this is a really random question and I don't know how you're going to feel about it, but you obviously you're involved in the sports world. So, you know, they want someone that has that experience, you know, you being a Stanley cup champion, Calder cup champion, you know, there's no shortage of that, but did you find any animosity from people you may just started working with at the beginning in broadcasting because you kind of got your way in there, whereas some people might've, you know, been going to school, bagging themselves, getting their chops up for broadcasting. Like, did you ever find any animosity from people that, you know, weren't former athletes in the industry? Yeah. You know, that's a, it's, it's an excellent question and it's a, a valid point. And yeah, I think there, there was some, there's always going to be a little bit of jealousy, no matter where you are, what industry you're in. Um, but you hope that people can kind of overcome that. I think there has to be, um, a level of respect for someone that's lived it or done it or played it no different than someone that I would respect that went to school and studied it and worked on his craft, you know, albeit in a, in a, in a school. So yeah. I, I would hope that I made way more friends than I did any enemies at Sportsnet. And I feel good about the people that I worked with and the support that I had. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's some people that, that still feel like, you know, um, whatever they did wasn't good enough. I, I mean, to a certain point where I, you can, I don't, I'm not sure how a, a broadcaster who didn't play could compare himself to someone that did. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not going to make everybody happy. You just try to do the best that you can and, and carry a little bit of that Mark Messier mentality in, uh, in a broadcasting world that you do in, in hockey is that you're, you're only as good as your weakest link mm-hmm. and that, you know, you got to be inclusive to have a good broadcasting show. It takes everybody working together, supporting each other from directors, you know, switchers camera people audio hosts you know all of them it takes it takes everybody to to have a a great broadcast so i think i made way more friends i i'm hoping that i did anyways well i think you're like i mean not that i know you other than this call but i mean you seem like a nice guy where i feel like people that could get involved in the industry that were former athletes like maybe their their presence might rub someone the wrong way maybe the way that they carry themselves being new to the industry but I couldn't imagine that being a, a problem with you, but it was something I thought about this morning. And I mean, you obviously having that athletic background, I was like, I wonder what it would have been like for him. Like, I guess getting started in the industry or at any point, you know, if you felt that way about people you were working with, but just well, something random I wanted to ask. Yeah, you, but I, I will say this, I will say this, that uh, there have been ex athletes that have come into that environment in that scenario and just felt that because they played that that was enough. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you after living and breathing it for 21 years, it's not enough Mm -hmm. that for me as an ex player to go into a broadcasting world where I am not 
trained for. I'm not, you know, I don't understand it. I have to go in and be the hardest working guy. I may not be the best. I may not be the most polished, but I have to be the hardest working guy to learn uh, an environment that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if you want these, if you want to get camera people and switchers and producers and directors on your side, if you want them cheering for you or, or hoping that you do well, you got to show them your ability to work hard and to learn and to understand. And just playing the game isn't enough. Mm-hmm. And, and talking about, oh, when I played, I did this. And when I did this, this happened. That's not enough. I lasted 21 years because I wanted to go in there and tell everybody, make me better, help me get better. What can I learn from you today? And if you have that attitude, then there's a very good chance you're going you're gonna to be a lot more successful than, than if you didn't. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, it's all about kind of how you handle yourself really. And um, I, I, I like that. that was, it's just cool to hear it from your perspective. Obviously, you know, you having the experience that you do. Um, I guess currently you're now, um, you touched a little bit about your own, uh, podcast that you're working on. It's coming out, um, you know, multiple episodes weekly. What have you like, apart from that, talk a little bit about what you've been up to in, in the present day and, and what, uh, other projects you're working on. I know we touched a, b- a little bit on those off air, but I think this would be the perfect opportunity to, you know, bring light to some of the other things you're doing as well. Yeah, well, part of the decision to kind of uh, go in a different direction was that I was young enough still to want to do some other things. And we know where the digital world is going, as you are doing right now with your podcast, Harrison. And uh, I just figured at my age right now, if I was going to try to go into a little bit of a digital world, I, I should do it sooner than later. And I was able to uh, partner up with uh, i3 Gaming Company uh, to produce a, a content show called The Real Kipper at Noon, and it's kind of based off of uh, Hockey Central at Noon with Doug McLean. So Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we do a hockey show for about an hour, and we pretty much do the same thing we did at Sportsnet, but he gets to do it in Florida. <laughs> I get to do it from my basement, my house, and, uh, and nothing's really changed. It's just about us, our opinion, and our, our goofiness mm-hmm. uh, to not take e- uh, each other and ourselves too seriously. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, and it's on linemovement.com. That's, uh, that's, uh, the affiliation to, uh, the I3 on online gaming company that I partnered up with. And then there was, a, a another thought that, uh, over the, the course of my career, I wanted to start doing some other things. I wanted to take the, the knowledge of, of team building and, and apply it in something away from the game of hockey. So my wife and I, and, and friends, uh, started a beverage company called little buddha cocktail and uh it's an rtd i'm not sure if you're aware of the term rtd it's ready to drink in a can and we know that uh the world's uh changed a little differently in terms of uh how we want our beverages including now uh pineapple and peach and all the various flavors out there so we uh we did an all-natural uh organic cocktail called little buddha pineapple and rosemary and we uh we're able to uh get it into the lcbo in in ontario and of course lcbo is one of the biggest uh buyers and distributor of alcohol in the world and uh we were able to sell close to thirty thousand cases of this pineapple and rosemary 
And now we're out with our second flavor that's going to come out uh, in about a week or two uh, in the LCBO, and that's a peach tea. So it's an all-natural, uh, organic, under 90 calories, no sugar, gluten-free, keto-friendly, all those boxes you like to check for the label readers. And uh, it's been quite an experience in the last year of, uh, of starting a company out of, uh, out of a simple idea. That's unreal. So is it kind of comparable to like a white claw, like a truly, but a your yes. own spin on one of those? That's yeah. You, you'll, you'll find us all on the same shelves, put it that way. Oh man. So these are available now. I'm going to have to, I'm going to need to go try these out after the yes. show. <clears throat> yeah. They're, uh, they're in the LCBO. Uh, and, uh, we're, we're so excited about our second flavor and, uh, my wife and, uh, our partner, Kim, they, they run the, they run the company day to day. So I try to try to do the best I can. I'm the official taster. They tell me, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the most important job. Though. So, but it's, it's been a great experience of trying to put a team together and then, you know, learning about how to buy cans and distributing and, um, you know, uh, getting through all this, uh, to be certified organically and, Oh my goodness. It's such hard work and, but been a great learning experience for all of us. Oh, that's unreal. Like you literally, you have the dream there, right there. The trifecta, I would call it. You got the, <laughs> you got the sports going for you. You got some broadcasting and then you got business in there. That's just, that's the dream right there. I'll tell you. That's yeah. Unreal. So make sure you try it this weekend, Harrison. I'll definitely have a couple of those. It's Friday right now. I might have to, my, my girlfriend loves drinks like that. I'll get her. A, she'll be a little Buddha return, like a loyal yes. customer after this. All right. Yeah. Guarantee yeah. It. And it's all about drinking mindfully, right? <laughs> That's so funny. So I, I don't want to take up much more of your time, but I will ask you for a piece of personal advice. And I think that I will ask it from you. Because, I mean, I certainly didn't have a career like yours on the ice, but, you know, you, you ended up going into a direction that I definitely take an interest in. So I didn't really give you much of a background even before the phone on, about myself. But, I mean, I just finished playing in youth sports hockey. I did five years up there. I split time in junior between major junior and the Western League, and then I played tier two out east. I mean, I'm not a bad player I'm certainly not going to make a million dollars but I was recently let go of this of the Birmingham Bulls in the Southern League just two weeks ago this is actually my second day off quarantine from when I got back I'm a little bit more freedom but I'm really debating personally if I should go back for one more kick at the can and and because I feel like for some reason that I didn't complete a full season it makes me feel like I don't want to end it on that note or I don't know personally I feel like I love hockey and I always will, but I feel like I might be better at other things than hockey. And it might be time to, to do that as you know, I got student loans and shit like that. It might be time to grow up. I just wanted to maybe hear your perspective. What would you do in my, how sport? old are you? Harrison? 26. So 26. Well, it's, uh, you don't want to, um, do something that you're going to regret a little later. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you feel like there's still, unfinished business with a game of hockey and you want to you, you want to get it out of your system a little bit more mm -hmm. um you know i am a true believer that if you follow your gut and your instinct at times i don't know necessarily if it'll it'll steer you wrong you know even if you mm -hmm. go out there and and play somewhere um 
You know, you never know who you might meet. You never know where it could lead. You never know what could spark from it. Um, But, you know, you just, you weigh out your pros and cons and, and then you just follow your heart, man. That's, Mm -hmm. that's all you got to do. The most successful people most often are the ones that show the most passion for something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where's your passion right now? Is it still in the game? If it is, maybe there's ways that you can get involved in the game without actually physically being on it. Um, you know, is there a junior program that you can get involved with? I don't know whether you foresee yourself as a, a coach, a manager, you know, if you want to stay in the game, maybe that's how you, you scratch your itch. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's really a, a personal thing. It's really a personal decision that only you can make ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because someone says, hey, time to grow up, doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's the right thing for you. Yeah. I mean, we're all grown up. I mean, I, I don't, I, don't I, I never felt like I've had a job in my life. I'm 54 years old right? Mm-hmm. I got to play the game that I loved. I got to talk about the game. And here I am at 54 and starting a new company in, in the beverage industry. And it, it still doesn't feel like it's work or a job. Mm-hmm. So for you, it's just uh, doing your soul searching and mm-hmm. then um, and weighing out uh, what you can physically and financially do and what you can't. And then you'll, you'll come up with the best decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, I think uh, the financial problem might be the big, the big one that uh, is getting these these thoughts, I guess, looked at earlier than I expected. I used to always have a goal I'd play till I was 30, but some of my student loans are, are making me rethink that goal, let's say. So we'll figure it out, but I, I appreciate that. It's, it's true. I mean, I'm definitely going to have, I'm in no rush to make that decision at all, but it's just something I was thinking of and I thought I should you know, who better to run it by then than you right now? Well, I wish you all the best, man. It was a pleasure talking to you for the last hour or so. And, uh, um, yeah, I wish you all the best. I, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I can't, I was laughing. I was like, you had, you had, you were talking to Mitch Marner one-on-one like a day ago and now you're talking to me. So that's a significant decline in guest appearances, (laughs) but I really appreciate you making the time. Like, you know, you're, you're busy. You're the man. You got a lot of things going on just for you to even come on to a, a show that's kind of just getting its, its start. I really appreciate it. I can assure you it's, it was not a decline. And I know Mitch Marner well enough. He will, he will agree with me. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's not get carried away either way. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, this might be definitely the biggest guest on the project yet, probably. All right. Know. I'm honored. I'm honored. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay. All right. All the best to you, Harrison. Holy moly. You know that feeling when you get off a roller coaster and you feel like the wind's still blowing on your face because you still got all that momentum? Yeah, that's how I feel from stepping out from that interview, dude. Talk about steamy. That was fun, though. I had a really good time. Um... About four seconds after he hung up, I remembered a question I wanted to ask him and almost started just pounding my face off my desk like a cartoon character. I really wanted to ask him to touch on Gordon, like the Gord Miller and Barstool sports situation 
especially because he was on Spit and Chicklets in um, sometime during the playoff run in 2019. I want to say it was episode 183. Don't know if that's exactly right, but it was in that ballpark. If you'd like to check him out on there, um, I wanted to ask him about his opinion because obviously he doesn't care about Barstool. He went on it, and obviously, like many people, well, the thing is with him too is people would actually. This is no offense to Gordon Miller, but Gordon Miller's not a former player. So yeah, maybe one day fucking Spittin' Chicklets is on like episode 300-something now. Like they're going to go through the sports media world and Gordon Miller might have got his chance. Definitely not now. Well, fuck, he doesn't want to come on either. That's the what made the whole thing a story. But it would have been fun to ask him about. Honestly, as much as I do regret it, I don't think that he would have ran with that question very far. I think he would have probably kept the answer pretty brief around that because, I mean, he's probably not going to dish disrespect out to Gordon Miller or certainly not to Barstool, who's hosted him on the platform of Spitting Chicklets before. But I, I think I should have asked that question. And other than that, that was the only thing I really didn't say that I think I should. I mean, I'm sure I'll think about some more things the next day or two as I replay what could have, should have, would have been. But I had a really good time. That was fun. And I was thinking about this morning. I was like, I've interviewed people that are on TV before. I've I've had guests on not this podcast, but my my last one, the Nip Show, the Lake Show, the Lake Show. What else do you want to know? Uh, we had Tim McAuliffe on that. We had Ivanka Osmak, <clears throat> Darren Turcott. Um, you know, we had we had some good guests for sure. But I mean, thinking this morning, I was like, I'm having a Stanley Cup champion on. That's a first for me, and I don't care if no one else thinks it's cool. I think that's pretty sweet. So I had a really good time doing that, and it was fun just looking and being like, I'm talking to Nick Kiprios right now. This is pretty cool, and we're talking about some big names, and I was like, this is sweet. I had a really good time. This isn't a hockey podcast, but obviously we, we took a trip down hockey lane today because we had a really great guest, and fuck, that was awesome. And hopefully that uh, maybe this will open the door for more cool guests, but – it's pretty hilarious. The guy's interviewing Mitch Marner, and then 12 hours later, he's interviewing me. So talk about a fucking slip and slide for him. But looking up for me. No? Looking up. Ah, this has been a good episode, folks. Had a lot of fun with it. Um, I meant to mention this on last episode because this just happened the other day. But uh, there, was a, there was a chance there, folks. I thought I, thought I was going to have to retire not just from work in general, maybe even podcasting, I thought of at one point because I had a TikTok out there and it was going viral, folks. It was buzzing. I thought I was going to be the next Dixie DeMello or Addison Ray, one of those. Is that the TikTok's name, girl, the girl's names? That's the big ones? I thought I was going to be up there with them. Um, I took a stupid video, which is very stupid, but my buddy, Mackenzie Dwyer, shout out to Mackenzie Dwyer, uh, friend of the show, loves to listen to the show. Not sure if he still does. This will be the test because I'm calling him out. And if he doesn't say anything to me in the next couple days about this, sh- this shout out, I will know that he has stopped watching this or listening to the show, viewing this content. And I will immediately call him out for doing so. But Dwyer showed me a hilarious way to shotgun beer. And um, I mean, I'm 26. I shouldn't be putting videos of me shotgunning beer anywhere. But with an app like TikTok, it's intriguing because, you know, I, I figured that like it's you put your thumb on the can you, you smack your thumb off your forehead and you do it a certain way and you will get a perfect shotgunning hole to shotgun your beer every single time and Dwyer showed me this when we were at the pool in Alabama and the first thing I could think of I was like man if you made that into a video like there's no way like a how-to video of how to do that there's no way that that wouldn't go viral 
So I was bored here last weekend and I was like, well, I'm going to put it up, put a video up there of me doing that. Cause I, I, I sent a Snapchat of me shotgunning one just to a couple friends. Cause I think it's, it is really hilarious the way you can do this. It's hard to explain over, over this uh, on a pod where you can't see me, but if you go find me on, um, TikTok and see the video, Hopsy boy, that's me on TikTok. Give me a follow too. Cause I'm looking to take over the TikTok world, but I, I put the video up there and, um, <clears throat> it was blowing up, man. Like it was crazy. Like. I could see it like starting to get some likes. And then I like was playing pickleball or something. And it was an afternoon last weekend. And then I put my phone down for like an hour and then I opened it. And all of a sudden I had like 60 notifications and I looked down and I had gotten like 200 some likes on this uh, video that I'd put up like an hour or two before. And I started just obviously, you know, you, that starts getting in the back of your head. You want to see how many likes you can get. Uh, Cause we're all sick and twisted and we're all fucked in the head. So I, just every couple minutes I'd go and I'd, I'd refresh it and I'd want to see if anyone else had liked it. And like every time I was doing it, I'd get like 50 likes. And then I started doing it to the point where I was literally just looking at it. I was like, man, I'm going to refresh it. Like every time it lets me, and I was getting like one or two likes every time I was like, Holy shit. Like comments were flowing in. I was like, this is insane. Like I only have a couple hundred likes. Like imagine someone's phone blowing up. If they were getting like the people with millions of likes, like their phones must just combust. They must just implode all of that notification action, but I got the video up to 600 and then fucking TikTok takes it down. Says that I was promoting dangerous acts. And I mean, I don't know if there had to be like a disclaimer I had to put somewhere like, don't do this at home, but it took it down. I hear people bitching about this all the time and it's actually happened to me before on another video that ended up getting like three likes. So I wasn't too disappointed when they took it down, but I had 600 likes and they fucking gassed me. So I put it right back up and then nothing was happening. I got like 16 likes and a couple people commented on it. One guy even commented being like, Oh man, like I saw this video before it got took down. Like this sucks, like tough look now, LOL. And then anyways, I put it back up. I slept and then I woke up and it kind of started buzzing again. People were buzzing. People liked it. I got up to like 600 likes, I think. And then that was the end of it. But it was pretty fun for, I was TikTok famous for about three hours in my own head. Pretty fun. It was pretty cool. It was hilarious. A lot of people were chapping me. Like people were coming at me being like, this is how you promote brain injuries. Yeah. What a fucking idiot, man. Wait till this guy's got dementia at four. I was like, holy shit, people. Like people were calling me out. Like a bunch of people were calling me out being like, what a child. I don't do this because I'm an adult. And I was like, could you imagine? Oh, well, we can imagine because it happens on every video, but it's just hilarious. I was having a great time. I made a reply video to a couple people. I was having it. I felt like a legitimate TikToker for a bit there. And it was a thrill, folks. So give it a whirl. Get a video up there and throw it up. Something the stupider, the better. Please. Because TikTok is hilarious, man. People will come at you. They will chap you immediately. So you grow some thick skin. Start throwing TikToks out there and just get absolutely berated by the online community. That's what I recommend to you. All right? Do it. Folks, this was so fun. I'm not going to talk any longer because I'm already at 20 minutes of me yapping with that's just not the interview. And the interview is over an hour long. So I don't want to talk up too much of your time. Okay, folks, this was an awesome episode. I really hope it's received well by you. Please do me a favor and share it if you can. Um, Pass it on to a friend. Send it to someone. If you do not already do so, please follow the project on Instagram. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, Follow the project on Facebook as well. And um, let's kind of get a bit of an online community growing. I'm not, I'm not a great social media guy, but I promise to do my best and, 
and start ramping up the posts here a little bit more, a little bit more frequently. And it doesn't always have to just be episode related. I might just start, you know, what I think's hilarious, what I think's funny. I might start putting shit up there. Okay. And, you know, growing this thing a um, little more than I am now. Okay. I, I, I want to take this show seriously. And I mean, we're, not, we're only 33 episodes in folks and we're just getting fucking started. All right. Uh, use this uh, interview as um, evidence of that. Uh, we're going to see a lot more great guests coming on and, um, Hopefully that's not just going to be hockey related. I'm going to want to get great guests involved from around the spectrum. And that's what this show is going to do. I can fucking guarantee it. So thank you so much for being a part of this. It's so fun. Like, I don't care how big this show gets. Like, I'm just really enjoying it. And I'm going to keep that going organically. Um, If the show never got any bigger than it is right now, I've just had such a good time doing this show and having friends and people I haven't had the chance to talk to uh, enough reach out to me and tell me that they're they're listening and they're following along and that they they enjoy it it means the world to me so I'm enjoying this I I feel like I've already made it and uh, whatever this is it is is uh, just me enjoying it and having a great time so thanks for being a part of it I really thank you if you're still listening you're an absolute legend and you're an absolute um, you're an absolute pod jacked veteran and uh, I cannot thank you enough so thank you for making episode number 33 part of your day. And I hope episode 34 will be part of your day coming soon. Okay, folks, thank you so much for being part of this. I sincerely mean it from the bottom of my heart. This is episode number 33, the Patrick Waugh episode. That's what I think of when I see 33. Maybe a little is the Dano Char in there, but it's a goalie number. Everyone in their life has at one point corrected somebody who doesn't know a fucking thing about hockey on Patrick Waugh's life. At some point, if you're a hockey fan... You have come across somebody in the world who has pronounced it Patrick Roy and you have corrected them proudly because you know that it's Wa. And maybe someone's even tried to call you out and be like, Whoa, what do you mean it's Wa? Look at how it's spelled R-O-Y right here, you stupid idiot. And that's because like, well, listen here, Charlie from Oklahoma. There's other languages. There's other places in the world, okay? So this is where he's from. He pronounces it a little fucking different, okay? It's pronounced wah, 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 okay? Lock it up. Last two things I'm going to remember before I actually pop off here and, and, and end this episode. I want to just uh quick shout out to any of my Alabaman listeners uh, thinking about you all after the tornado ripped through the state. I hope you're all safe. Hope your family and friends are as well because that shit is scary. Tornadoes are scary business. So I hope you're all well. Everyone down that area, I hope everyone's taking good care. Um, <clears throat> last item of business is Craft Hockeyville is uh, looking to name another champion in, in the Canadian region. And um, LZ Book took is the one you got to vote for this year, okay? Elsie Booktook is getting your vote for Craft Hockeyville in Canada this year. Uh, friend of the show, guest in uh, one of our earlier episodes, Trey Lewis, former Memorial Cup champion, not a big deal. Uh, he, that's where he's from. That's where my good friend Tyrone Sock's from. Uh, a lot of good people are from that area that I know, and um, they're they're great community, very deserving. They lost their uh, one of their arenas to a fire in the past couple of years, and the money that they could potentially win from being named hockeyville would go to absolutely great use so make sure they are very deserving they need your vote come april 9th and 10th don't forget it okay thank you very much this is episode number 33 take care and we'll be talking to you very very soon bye for now